Time, weather, and... Hey, Fire Fire Nation? Fire Fire Nation, can you hear me? Alright, give me one second here. Alright, nope. Let me try this one. Hold on a second. Alright, I think... Yep. Okay, okay, I got it. Thank you, Fire Nation. I definitely have it. I had to adjust the dials there a little bit because no, this is not your regularly scheduled programming of another inspiring entrepreneur dropping value bombs. Of course, we did release an amazing one this morning, as always, but I wanted to drop in a bonus episode today as well because I am so fired up and excited to have launched my passion project of 2018. memoir, audio biographies of the men and women who changed the world. This is a podcast where I highlight the life of one inspiring, one incredible man or woman who did something incredibly impactful to this world. And I'm excited because episode one is live and it's actually a four-part series of the life of Alexander the Great. I'm going to play part one of this four-part series for you right now. So if you have any interest in history or biographies, you're going to love this because I hired voice actors, dropped in sound effects, highly, highly produced this, and I'm really excited to share this with you. Um, If you don't like history and you don't like biographies, you're probably going to want to skip this episode because it won't be for you. But Alexander the Great's life was a fascinating one for many reasons. And this is part one of the four-part series. If you want to listen to parts two, three, and four, of course, you can just visit our website, memoir.one. That's memoir.one. Memoir is also available in iTunes, in Google Play, and it will very quickly be available in Spotify and Stitcher, so it's probably available when you're hearing my voice. If it's not, it will be any day now. So Fire Nation, hope you don't mind this little bonus episode. Again, if you love history, you're going to love this. If you like history, you're going to love this. If you don't like history, go to the next episode. Nobody's keeping you here, but I would love if you gave it a try because I did pour my heart and my soul into Memoir autobiographies of the men and women who changed the world. Have a listen. Time marches on. But where would we be without those who walked the earth before us? Welcome to Memoir, autobiographies of the men and women who changed the world. It was the spring of 326 B.C., Alexander and his army had been on the march for eight years. They had conquered the Persians, set Egypt free, obtained unprecedented wealth and fame, and had massacred hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children. Now they were on the banks of the Hydaspes River, which is now in the Punjab province of Pakistan. This was going to be their entry point into what was then considered India. And across the river was the king of India, Porus, with over 50,000 infantry, 4,000 cavalry, 300 chariots, and 200 war elephants. Alexander, per usual, was outnumbered. His infantry was 40,000 battle-hardened veterans, along with 7,000 of his now-famous companion cavalry. But despite a smaller force, Alexander's army was well-trained, well-equipped, and was dripping with experience, having fought in numerous engagements over the past eight years. 
to cross a raging river into the teeth of a larger army, you better have all these qualities. And to put it frankly, it posed a massive challenge. And if there's one thing you'll learn about Alexander over the course of this autobiography, he loves a good challenge. Little did Alexander know as he prepared to cross into India and attack King Porus, but this would be the last major battle of his life and he would be dead within three years. Alexander's men would not have believed it, for he was their invincible leader. King Porus would not have believed it either, as the legend of Alexander the Great had grown larger than life, and at the time he must have felt like another bump in the road on Alexander's conquest to conquer the world. But the real question is, where did this all begin? Alexander the Great, also known as Alexander III of Macedon, was born on July 20th, 356 BC in Pella, the capital of the Kingdom of Macedon. His mother was Olympias, the fourth wife of the King of Macedon, King Philip II. On the day Alexander was born, Philip was preparing a siege on the city of Potidia. That same day, Philip received news that his general Parmenion had defeated the combined Illyrian and Paeonian armies and that his horses had won at the Olympic Games. So it was safe to say that Philip was in a great mood on Alexander's birthday and likely saw all these events as a great omen of what was to come in his son's life. Philip had seven or eight wives, but Olympias was his principal wife for some time, most likely because she gave birth to a boy, to Alexander. Olympias was quite an interesting woman and claimed that she was struck by a thunderbolt prior to Alexander's birth, which of course meant his real father was Zeus. Alexander, I am your father. A lot of these legends may have emerged when Alexander was king, and possibly he instigated them to show that he was superhuman and destined for greatness from the moment of his conception. Alexander's Early Years Alexander, like all Macedonian youths, learned to read, play the lyre, which was a harp, ride, fight, and of course, hunt. When Alexander was 10, a trader from Thessaly brought Philip a horse which refused to be mounted, and Philip ordered it away. Send this horse away! Alexander observed the horse, simply feared its own shadow, and asked his father for the opportunity to tame the horse. <laughs> it wasn't an easy feat, but Alexander loved a good challenge and eventually succeeded. Philip was so impressed with Alexander's courage and ambition, he said, My boy. You must find a kingdom big enough for your ambitions. Macedon is too small for you. Oh, Philip, if you only knew. Philip bought the horse for Alexander, who named it Bucephalus, meaning Oxhead. The boy and horse became inseparable, and Alexander became an expert rider before his 12th birthday. When Alexander turned 13, Philip chose Aristotle to be his tutor. Side note story. Aristotle agreed to tutor Alexander only if Philip agreed to rebuild Aristotle's hometown of Stagiria, which Philip had destroyed, and to repopulate it by buying and freeing the ex-citizens who were slaves or pardoning those who were currently in exile. King Philip is not known for making deals, but he knew the value Aristotle would bring to his son's life, so he agreed to every one of Aristotle's requests, and Alexander's tutoring began. Aristotle taught Alexander and his companions about medicine, philosophy, morals, religion, logic, and art. Alexander developed a passion for the works of Homer, in particular, the Iliad. 
Aristotle gave him an annotated copy, which Alexander carried on every one of his campaigns. Alexander becomes a man. At the age of 16, Alexander's education under Aristotle ended. Philip had just left to wage war against Byzantine, leaving Alexander in charge as regent and heir apparent. During Philip's absence, the Thracians, the country on Macedonia's northern border, revolted against Macedonia. In his first true test, Alexander responded quickly and attacked the Thracians with overwhelming force. You want some of this? He was so successful that he drove the Thracians from their territory and colonized it with Greeks, also founding a city named Alexandropolis. Hmm, I'm kinda liking naming things after myself. Philip was impressed with Alexander's success and gave him more responsibility in Macedon. In their first joint campaign, father and son marched south in 338 BC through Thermopylae, taking it after stubborn resistance from its Theban garrison. Both Athens and Thebes were getting more than a little nervous about how close King Philip and his Macedonians were getting to their respective territories. Would you like to form an alliance? Uh, yeah, sure. They formed an alliance to repel the Macedonians and rejected a final offer of peace from Philip, which led to the Battle of Coronea. The Battle of Coronea. The Battle of Coronea was fought in 338 BC, just a couple days' march from Athens. King Philip led 32,000 Macedonians against the alliance of Athens and Thebes, who were able to gather 35,000 men. In their first major battle together, Philip gave Alexander command of the left flank and took command of the right. Once the battle started, it was hot and heavy fighting, and many were killed on both sides. For a while, it was very evenly contested and looked like victory could go to either side. The Greek line was holding strong, so Philip ordered a retreat with his right flank. Retreat! This resulted in the Greeks smelling victory and launching an all-out charge. Charge! However, Philip has strategically retreated to an easily defended high ground, and this is where he sprung his trap. He ordered his men to halt their retreat, establish a defensive line, and await the disorganized attack from the Greeks. Halt! Form the line! Stand fast! The Greeks fell for his deception and struck his disciplined line of defense as a disorganized rabble. The attack failed, and Philip ordered his Macedonians forward, routing the now panicked Greeks. Forward! March! The attack against Philip had also caused a break in the Greek line. Alexander saw the opportunity and with no hesitation, smashed through the break with his companion cavalry, completing the route. Companions, on me! At one point, Alexander surrounded the Sacred Band, which were 300 elite Theban warriors who were thought to be invincible. Lay down your weapons. Never! You've left me no choice. Prepare to die! Alexander then promptly ordered the massacre of them all. Macedonian victory was total. Over 6,000 Greeks died or were taken prisoner, and the Battle of Coronea became one of the most decisive battles in ancient history. Now, no army in Greece could stand up to Philip and his Macedonians, effectively ending all resistance to complete Macedonian domination of Greece, save for the Spartans, and more on that later. Alexander performed admirably in his first major engagement, and Philip praised him publicly. Son! You have proven both courage and intelligence on the battlefield. There is more greatness to come for you, myself, and all of Macedonia. 
After the battle. The Athenians now feared Philip would destroy Athens and quickly began to rebuild their city walls in preparation for a siege. Philip, however, had no intention of besieging any city nor of conquering Greece. He wanted all of Greece to ally with him for his campaign against the Persians, who were, in his mind, the true enemy. (sighs) Can't we all just get along? Philip knew a stable Greece was critical when he departed for his campaign in Asia Minor. He spent the next few months traveling around Greece, installing pro-Macedonian leaders and forming alliances. The League of Corinth was formed in 337 BC by Philip, his goal being a stable Greece. All states signed up to the League except Sparta. Philip did not want to lose men and time fighting the mighty Spartans, so he left them alone. And again, more on this later. The principal terms of the League of Corinth were that all members became allied to each other and to Macedon, and that all members were guaranteed freedom from attack, freedom from navigation, and freedom from interference in internal affairs. Philip did install Macedonian garrisons in Greece to act as, quote-unquote, keepers of the peace. Let's be honest, his trust in the League only went so far. Then Philip pressured the League to declare war on Persia, which they did, And shockingly, Philip was voted as commander for the forthcoming campaign. An advanced Macedonian force was sent to Persia in early 336 BC, with Philip due to follow later in the year. Death of a king, 336 BC. In 336 BC, Philip returned to the capital of Macedonia, Pella, to prepare for his invasion of Persia. While he was attending the wedding of his daughter, he was assassinated by the captain of his bodyguards, Pausanias. The king has been murdered after that man! Pausanias fled the scene of the assassination and was pursued by many. He tripped over a vine while trying to escape and was killed by two of Alexander's companions, Perdiccas and Leonatus. Panic began to set in immediately, but Alex was proclaimed king on the spot by the nobles and army. All hail Alexander, king of Macedonia! Alexander was 20, and his reign had begun. The reign of Alexander. Alexander began his reign by eliminating potential rivals to the throne. If he thought they were a threat, they probably were, and he had them killed. Other issues sprang to the forefront. Almost immediately after news of Philip's death, many states sprang into revolt, including Thebes, Athens, Thessaly, and the Thracian tribes north of Macedon. They assumed Macedonia would be disorganized and slow to react without their leader, King Philip. Alexander knew this was a crucial test he must pass and responded quickly, mustering a lightning force of 3,000 Macedonian cavalry and rode south. Thessaly was the first state the Macedonians would encounter, and they planned on facing Alexander head-on, confident with their superior numbers to Alexander's mere 3,000. But as many enemies would come to find out, Alexander was not going to play by their rules. During the night, Alexander outflanked the Thessalians, and when they awoke in the morning, he was behind them. Assuming another Macedonian army was marching south, which wasn't happening, and that they would soon be surrounded, which they wouldn't, Thessaly quickly surrendered, and Alexander added their cavalry to his force and continued south towards Athens. Athens saw the writing on the wall and sued for peace. Their walls were still not finished, and they feared being made an example of by this young new whippersnapper out to prove his worth. In a very shrewd and mature moment, Alexander pardoned them. Like his father before him, Alexander simply wanted a stable Greece so that he could set off and fight the true enemy, the Persians. 
Alexander reinstated the League of Corinth and was named Philip's replacement commander for the upcoming campaign against Persia. The rebellions continue. In 335 BC, Alexander was forced to march north of Macedonia to subdue the Thracians who had rebelled. You have got to be kidding me. He quickly squashed this disorganized tribal rebellion, but then received news that Thebes and Athens had once again rebelled. Seriously, can't we all just get along? This must have been a frustrating time for Alexander. All he wanted was a secure and supportive Greece so that he could begin his campaign against the true enemy, the Persians. And it took time and a lot of effort to move his army south, north, and south again. They weren't jumping on planes, trains, and automobiles. All movement was done on horse or foot, with sluggish supply lines slowing everything down. Thebes was first on his list, and the Thebans decided to fight it out. Their resistance was futile, and Alexander made short work of them. And with bitterness of the wasted time and effort, he raised Thebes to the ground and divided his territory between the other cities in his empire. He was sending a message to all those who would challenge him. I will destroy you. Message received. The destruction of Thebes terrified Athens. After a quick internal discussion of the leaders of Athens, they completely submitted to Alexander, finally leaving all of Greece, at least temporarily, at peace. Alexander was finally free to set out on his Asian campaign, but before leaving Macedon, he promoted his father's experienced general Antipater as commander of the region, leaving him with 9,000 infantry and 1,500 cavalry to maintain control over Macedonia's holdings in Europe. More than just soldiers, Alexander left behind the smoldering ruins of the once great city of Thebes. Greece finally understood the wrath of Alexander was horrific to behold. Woe is me to the foe who crossed Alexander! Conquest of the Persian Empire 334 BC Finally, Alexander was free to enter Persia and begin the conquest he'd been dreaming about most of his life. The year was 334 BC. After marching through Thrace, Alexander's army crossed the Hellespont with approximately 48,100 soldiers, 6,100 cavalry, and a fleet of 120 ships. As soon as Alexander set foot in Asia, he showed his intent to conquer the entirety of the Persian Empire by throwing a spear into Asian soil and declaring, I accept Asia as a gift from the gods! Pretty cocky assumption, if I must say so myself. The king of Persia was Darius III. He refused to take Alexander seriously or mount a serious challenge to Alexander's invasion. Alexander was making trouble far to the west of his vast empire, and he decided to swat the fly from his comfortable throne in Babylon. Darius designated Memnon of Rhodes as his fly swatter. Memnon was a Greek mercenary who aligned himself with the Persians. He advocated a scorched earth strategy to destroy the land in front of Alexander, which he hoped would force Alexander's army to starve and then return back to Greece. The Persians did not fully trust Memnon because of his nationality and did not ravage their territories. They thought Alexander would be easy to defeat and didn't want to damage their lands or retreat, which would have been dishonorable. The Macedonians kept advancing relentlessly. Finally, Darius ordered Memnon to stop their advance at Granicus River. Stop this rascal Alexander in his tracks. Don't make me come out there, Memnon. The Battle of Granicus River, May 334 BC. 
The first of three major battles fought between Alexander the Great and the Persian Empire was the Battle of Granicus River in May of 334 BC. At the time of this battle, Alexander commanded 37,000 soldiers, 32,000 of which were infantry and 5,000 cavalry. Opposing him were over 80,000 soldiers, 40,000 Persian infantry, 20,000 Persian cavalry, and 20,000 Greek mercenary infantry. The Persians thought their superior numbers in cavalry would win the day. They also believed that they would be able to divide and confuse Alexander's army by contesting their river crossing, which would lead to a victorious rout. Okay, now take a minute and picture the Granicus River. It was all that separated the two armies. However, being 60 feet wide with both a fast current and steep embankments, the Persians thought it provided them a huge advantage since Alexander would be the one who would have to cross the river to attack. Oh, by the way, the Persians loved their cavalry. It was a position of honor to be in the cavalry, and because of this, most of the nobles made up their ranks. Shockingly, the nobles wanted all the glory of what they thought would be a victorious rout, so the cavalry took their place in the front with the infantry and artillery to the rear. This made sense to the Persian nobles as they would win all the glory in the upcoming battle. However, it meant the infantry and artillery were blind to what was happening to their front. The Persians did not expect an immediate attack because of the raging Granicus River and the fact that their cavalry was four times the size of Alexander's. He wouldn't be so foolish, would he? Once again, Alexander did the unexpected. Instead of waiting and searching for a better ford, he immediately crossed the river. The Persian archers and the rest of the artillery were unable to oppose the crossing as they could see little more than the rear end of 20,000 Persian horses. Well, would you look at that? The Persian cavalry were armed with scimitars and could do little to slow Alexander's crossing. The Persians were now forced to face the Macedonians head on. Alexander began the battle with a cavalry and light infantry faint on the left side, kind of like a pump fake in basketball. The Persians were not used to these tactics and heavily reinforced that side, but this is only a feint, and as soon as the Persians committed their reinforcements to the left, Alexander led his companion cavalry in their classic wedge-shaped charge, smashing into the center of the Persian line. The Persian center was caught off guard and quickly disintegrated into chaos. A Persian squadron of nobles who were not initially going to engage so early in the battle were forced to charge into the fight to reinforce the center. We must reinforce the center. Charge! Several of these high-ranking Persian nobles were killed by Alexander and his bodyguards, throwing the command and control of the entire Persian army into disarray. Alexander wasn't immune from danger and was stunned by an axe blow from a Persian nobleman named Roy Sakes. A second Persian named Spithratus attempted to attack Alexander from behind while he was still recovering from the axe blow. Clytus the Black came to Alexander's rescue. Alexander, look out! And severed Spithritus's outstretched arm before he could strike what would likely have been a death blow. Alexander quickly recovered and led a fresh charge with his companion cavalry to attack the remainder of the Persian cavalry, which had begun to retreat. Retreat! The Persian cavalry retreat opened a hole in the Persian line, and the Macedonian infantry charged through and began attacking the poor-quality Persian infantry and high-quality Greek mercenaries. The Persian infantry began dying by the hundreds, and the Greek mercenaries were soon surrounded by the Macedonians. With many of their leaders already dead, their infantry routed, and seeing the collapse of the center, both of the flanks of the Persian cavalry fled the field of battle. 
Panic ensued and a total retreat of the Persian forces began, with many Persians being cut down as they bolted from the field of battle. Alexander soon sounded the horn to reform at the scene of the battle as he didn't want his forces to get too carried away by chasing the fleeing Persians into the desert. The victory was complete. Alexander and his Macedonians claimed the battlefield. The Persians simply miscalculated the Macedonians' strength as fighters and Alexander's action-first attitude, which resulted in the immediate attack catching the Persians off guard. The Persians paid a high price for their series of blunders. They lost roughly 1,000 cavalry, 3,000 infantry, and 2,000 more were captured and sold into slavery. The Greek mercenaries who fought for the Persians were also abandoned by them during the all-out retreats. They attempted to broker a peace with Alexander, but to no avail. To Alexander, any Greek who fought with the Persians was the worst kind of traitor. He ordered the mercenaries to be enslaved, those still alive, that is. Out of the 20,000 Greek mercenaries who woke up on the morning of battle, more than 10,000 were killed and the rest were sent back to Macedon to work in the mines as a lesson for any Greek who decided to fight for the Persians. Alexander sent 300 suits of Persian armor to Athens to be hung up in the Acropolis and ordered this inscription to be fixed over them to mark the absence of the Spartans and his united Greek army. Alexander! Son of Philip and all the Greeks, except the Lacedaemonians, present this offering from the spoils taken from the barbarians inhabiting Asia. But he wasn't bitter about Sparta or anything. Alexander accepted the surrender of the Persian capital Sardis and, of course, its treasury. This victory gave Alexander possession of half of Asia Minor. Not a bad start to a campaign, one might say. After Dranicus. Alexander took his victorious army south along the Ionian coast, granting freedom and democracy to the cities located there. Wanting to appear as a liberator, he freed the population from the Persian chains and allowed self-government. As he continued to march down the coast, he saw that his victory at Granicus had spread and his fame, as well as his fury, preceded him. Town after town surrendered without a fight. Most, in fact, welcomed the Macedonians with cheering in the streets. All seem to be going as plans. Here's an interesting side story that takes place at the ancient capital of Gordium. Side note story. In the city of Gordium, there was an unsolvable knot. Kind of like the knot you get when you're in a rush while tying your shoes, but like three times harder. Similar to King Arthur's sword in the stone myth, it was said that the one who could undo the Gordian knot was the future king of Asia. Thou who undoes this knot of knots will become the king of all Asia. Alexander proclaimed that it did not matter how the knot was undone and hacked it apart with his sword. Fulfilling the Gordian knot legacy, in his mind anyway, Alexander's confidence in all of his abilities was on the rise. After a few more weeks of campaigning, the Ionian coast in Western Asia Minor was secure. It was time to turn east and head towards the rising sun. His destiny awaited there, and without hesitation, Alexander turned his great army towards Syria. 
Well, there you have it. Part one of our four-part Alexander the Great series has come to an end. We witnessed Alexander's early years, his first skirmish against the Thracians, his first battle against the Greeks, his father's death, Alexander's ascension to the throne, his squashing of a potential rebellion, and then his first foray into Persia, which was a monumental success. In part two, we'll dive even deeper into Alexander's Persian campaign, which includes his freeing of the Greek cities along the Ionian coast. We'll witness his military genius while attacking two fortified cities, and we'll examine his first and second battle against the Persian king Darius, who leaves the comforts of Babylon to fight Alexander face-to-face and much, much more. If you enjoyed Memoir, please visit memoir.one to subscribe to our newsletter for sneaky peeks of upcoming episodes. Also, we have a voting widget at memoir.one so you can help choose the next featured memoir. That's memoir.one. Lastly, if you're enjoying Alexander the Great's story, I have a treat for you. Stephen Pressfield wrote an amazing book called The Virtues of War, which is the story of Alexander the Great told from the perspective of Alexander himself. You will love it. It's simply historical fiction at its best. And if you're not currently an Audible member, you can listen to this audiobook for free by visiting memoir.one slash book. After signing up, which is free, you'll be gifted an audiobook of your choice. And again, I highly recommend The Virtues of War. That's memoir.one slash book. Memoir.one slash book. Thank you for listening to Memoir, audiobiographies of the men and women who changed the world.